Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, we look at the intersection of physics and business. Coming up, we meet a physicist who helps insurance companies identify fraudulent claims by analyzing vehicle collisions using Newtonian physics. But first, we celebrate the winners of this year's Institute of Physics Business Awards. The UK's Institute of Physics, which publishes Physics World, has been presenting its business awards for over a decade, and more than 70 businesses have been cited for their commercial innovations in a wide range of sectors, including aerospace, quantum, and nanotechnology. This year's winners have just been announced, and Physics World's Margaret Harris was at the awards ceremony, and now she's here to talk about some of the winners. Hi, Margaret. Hi, Hamish. So, Margaret, awards are presented to both established companies and startups. So let's start with the startups. There were four winners this year, and one is Cambridge-based Porotech, which makes LEDs. Now, why was that company chosen? Well, this is a company that seems to have really big commercial potential. So Porotech won their award for producing a red micro-LED, so light-emitting diode, and they've done this on an epitaxial wafer that's made from indium gallium nitride. And that might not sound very exciting if you're not an expert in these things. I mean, red LEDs have been around for quite a while. Hmm. But nobody had done it in a commercially viable way on indium gallium nitride before. And that's important because it could drastically simplify color displays. Um, these are generally made up of red, green, and blue emitters. And traditionally, those red, green, and blue emitters had to be made from different combinations of semiconductors. And the fact you have to use all these different materials introduced a whole bunch of headaches because it's hard to get all those different materials to sort of play nicely together on, on a chip. Oh, right. Yeah. So making them all from the same stuff is, is simpler in some ways. And actually, that's what they won their award for. But I was told um, by the people at the company I spoke to at the ceremony that they've actually since built on this and they've now developed a technology that allows any pixel in a micro LED array to emit colors ranging from blue to infrared. So rather than having three sub-pixels in different colors that combine to make whatever color you want, you can just have one pixel with a color that you can change. Uh, and that's a huge improvement in terms of complexity and also just, just the weight of the chip. Um, at the event, I spoke briefly to uh, James McKenzie, who writes Physics World Transactions column on physics and business. And he thinks this technology could be really important for handheld and wearable displays where weight is really at a premium. Right, that makes sense. So I suppose the, the, the little display that would go in the corner of your eyeglasses, for example, that, that could really benefit from, from this. Yeah, possibly. I mean, obviously, this is a startup. It's got plenty of, of issues still to work out. So, you know, we're not going to be seeing this technology tomorrow. But I think there's a lot of potential here, definitely. And they'll also be celebrating in Milton Keynes, where Digistain is located. What does this company do? Yeah, okay. So this is one of two award-winning companies that are in the cancer diagnostics market. Um, Digistain is focused on performing infrared vibrational spectroscopy on tissue obtained from breast biopsies. So at the moment, if someone's got a suspected breast cancer, uh, one of the first things that happens is that the clinicians will take a sample of tissue from the lump, uh, a biopsy, and then look at it to see if the cells in it are cancerous, if so, what type of cancer it is, and so on. And to do this, they use a chemical dye, a stain, 
to help them distinguish between cancerous and non-cancerous cells. But the images you get from that, it can be hard to read. And fundamentally, it's, it's, it's just a highly trained person looking down a microscope. There's a lot of guesswork, a lot of expertise that goes into reading biopsies this way. And so Digisane's technology is designed to remove some of the guess, guesswork and therefore speed up the time to diagnosis and get these patients with breast cancer treated much more quickly than they would be otherwise. Uh, that, that, that sounds like a, like a really useful technology. I mean, my, my understanding of cancer is that if you if you can sort of get that treatment started uh, as soon as possible, your your outcome is is much much better. Certainly, a lot of the time it is. Yes, absolutely. And Margaret, it's no surprise that uh, a quantum technology company has been honored um, this year by the IOP. Um, located in Hayward's Heath, which I think is uh, just north of Brighton, um, Universal Quantum has won a sixty million. A pound contract to build a quantum computer. So, so what's so special about their approach to quantum computing? Why did they win um, the IOP award? Yeah, so Universal Quantum was actually in the news pages of Physics World just a couple of weeks ago for winning this 60 million pound contract with the German government uh, to build a quantum computer, and it's based on trapped ion qubits. This is different from the approach used by most quantum companies, which tend to focus on superconducting qubits, although there are a few, um, notably IonQ, that are using cold ions as well. The key here is that the company's founder, who's a physicist at Sussex University, um, Winfred Hensinger is his name, he thinks he's found a way to make ion technology scale up to a million qubits. This would be a huge um, distance between the sort of hundred or so that is, is, is common now to a million. Um, will it work? Uh, obviously, time will tell, but you certainly can't fault universal quantum for a lack of ambition. Am I right in thinking, Margaret, that it's still up in the air in terms of what sort of qubit design will ultimately win out? I mean, um, you know, sure, universal quantum has won this contract to use ions, but th- there's other technologies available, isn't there? And uh, it's not quite clear which one will will be the one that goes forward, in, in fact, if there's only one. Yeah, I don't think there necessarily has to be sort of, it's not like the Highlander, there, there isn't, it isn't the case that there can only be one. Um, they, there may be different qubits, uh, different physical qubits being used for different purposes. There may be, you know, one may sort of dominate for, for research in, in quantum chemistry, that sort of thing. Another may go into, you know, um, more commercial type applications. It's really not certain yet, um, but certainly I mean, it is one thing it is clear is that uh, the German government has just taken a giant bet um, by by quantum standards, at least on on this trapped ion technology. And it'll be really exciting to see where it goes. And last but certainly not least in the in the startup um, area, uh, a company called Cerex Medical, which has UK offices in Cardiff and Bristol, has developed a new pacemaker, and that's been honoured in the IOP awards. What what does their device do, Margaret? Yeah, so Cerex Medical makes a pacemaker that syncs up with lung function. Um, apparently, uh, the heart naturally speeds up when you breathe in, so take a deep, deep breath and breathe out. And it, so it slows down when you breathe out. Uh, and this makes this heart generally work better, but ordinary pacemakers don't replicate this functionality. As I understand, they just keep a, a quite steady beat. Um, so the idea is that this pacemaker synchronizes heart and lung function. And in animal tests of this pacemaker, they found that it actually 
damaged heart tissue began to regenerate after as little as like a week or 10 days. And that's really important because that doesn't usually happen. Heart failure is notoriously hard to treat. It doesn't have a good prognosis for patients. So anything that improves it would be absolutely huge. Um, now, it hasn't been tested in humans yet. That is their next step. Uh, they're initially going to trial it with patients who've had heart surgery and are put on temporary external pacemakers while they recover. So obviously, it's an external device. It's easier to get approval for plugging someone into this external device that can be removed if it doesn't work um, than it is to start straight from implanting things. But if that's successful, their next step will be to then integrate their tech with an implantable pacemaker. Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, uh, you know, I would have thought that a pacemaker is a very established technology that's, uh, you know, it's uh, helped millions of people worldwide. It's, it's interesting to hear that, um, that companies like Cyrix are, are, are still working to, to build a better pacemaker. Well, yeah, it's, it's not quite as old a technology as, as a, as a mousetrap, you know, building a better mousetrap is, is uh, the sort of uh, cliche about things. But yeah, it does take people to uh, a certain type of mindset. And, and often that's a physicist to sort of look anew at, at an old technology and say, how can we make this 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 work better? Mm. I think that's what the, the awards really try to to honor is, is people who've uh, applied physics um, to solve a, a problem, either existing problem or new problem that's just emerged and uh, make something of it. So four startup companies um, won awards this year. And I think there were three winners in the established companies uh, category. Can you tell us um, something about those three companies, Margaret? Yeah. So the established companies, you know, are actually, one of them is actually is a startup, but it's already um, sort of produced a product that has great sort of social or economic impact. Um, And that is, um, the name of it is Circumagnetics, and regular readers of Physics World may actually have seen this name before, because back in February 2021, we published an article in the magazine on quantum sensors being used for magnetoencephalography, or MEG. Um, MEG machines are basically brain scanners. They work by sensing the tiny magnetic fields caused by electric, electric activity in your brain, which is great. You can learn a lot of, about the brain's function by looking at those magnetic fields. But these fields are really tiny, and the main way of sensing them at the moment is to use something called a superconducting quantum interference device, or a SQUID, as it's called. Um, And listeners who know something about superconductivity will know that for something to be superconducting, it needs to be very, very cold. And to get that cold requires cryogenic cooling, which is expensive, and it means you're going to need to do your brain scanning in a big machine that's definitely not going to leave the laboratory. Now, the alternative, which was pioneered by physicists at Nottingham University and then commercialized as as circumagnetics, is to use a different device called an optically pumped magnetometer as your field sensor instead of a squid. This is a newer technology, and the company commercializing it for applications is called Circumagnetics, and they won the award for bringing to market the the world's first wearable MEG scanner. It just sort of fits like a a funny-looking cap over the person's head and can then you know, be used to sense the magnetic fields in their brain and diagnose problems such as epilepsy and other sort of complex uh, neuro- neurological disorders. And there's also a, a cancer diagnostics firm called Zillico in there, Margaret. What, um, what do they do? Yeah, this is the other cancer diagnostics company in the list, the first being Digistain we talked about a few minutes ago. Um, and, but Zillico make a probe that helps clinicians diag- 
diagnose and detect early stage cervical cancer. And the fundamental insight here is that abnormal cervical cells have a different electrical impedance than normal cells. So by measuring this impedance with a probe that goes where a cervical probe would need to go, um, the probe allows clinicians to select the right areas of the cervix to biopsy or remove, thereby reducing the pain and discomfort and improving the accuracy of the procedure. And the final winner this year is a company called Innovative Physics. And um, I understand that we've also covered that company in physics world extensively over the last few years. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Innovative Physics makes sensor technologies for the nuclear sector, and particularly detectors aimed at helping identify contaminated areas or nuclear material that's, for whatever reason, uh, not where it should be. Um, and they had previously appeared in Physics World with, to do with a, a gamma camera, a gamma radiation detector. But they're on the Business Innovation Award winner list this year for developing a neutron detector and deploying it at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant in Japan, which is being decommissioned now after it was damaged so extensively by the tsunami around 10 years ago and subsequently melted down. So they're using this device out in the field to help um, decommission this uh, hazardous area of, of the Fukushima plant. Uh, it must be really exciting going to um, the award ceremony, Margaret, and, and meeting um, some of the people associated with these companies. Is, is, there, a real, is there a real buzz um, when you talk to, um, uh, to people about these amazing technologies that they're developing? Absolutely, because you know, in, in many cases, these companies had been, have been um, you know, spun out from research groups and may have been sort of toiling in obscurity for quite some time trying to hone this technology that they're developing into something that can become can become a commercial product. And particularly with the startups, you know, a few of them are, it's like, you know, finally someone has recognized this, this work that they've done. And, you know, yeah, it's, it's absolutely very exciting to speak to them because they, they definitely all, to a, to a man and to a woman and, and, and any person there just believes very much in the technology and they're really excited to, to tell you about it. And I'm actually hoping that we'll get a chance to speak to, to some of the winners in more detail later, so you don't have to just take my word for it about how exciting their technologies are. Oh, that we would be have, fantastic. Yeah, we should have a few of them on the, on the podcast probably in the new year, so listen out for that. Excellent. Thanks, Margaret, and congratulations to all the winners. And you can find out more about the awards and this year's winners on the Institute of Physics website. And I think somewhere there, there's also a list of, of all the 70 plus winners who have, uh, who have garnered the award over the past decade. While quantum technologies might be hot stuff right now in the world of physics, startups, and venture capital, a knowledge of old-fashioned classical mechanics can also form the basis for a thriving business, as Physics World's Mateen Durrani discovers. So one of the great things about physics is all the different things you can do with a degree in the subject. But until early this year, I didn't know anyone whose job it is to study car crashes. In fact, the person we're about to hear from uses Newton's laws to weed out bogus car insurance claims. So I'm delighted to be joined by Mike Hall, who's head of research at GBB, a company in the UK that provides impartial scientific, forensic and engineering advice on traffic collisions. Now, he, re he recently wrote a feature for Physics World on this topic and I'm delighted to be joined by uh, Mike. Hi, Mike. Hi, thank you for inviting me to do this podcast. 
Right, we had a few glitches on previous uh, attempts to record it, so let's hope this works out. Yeah. Um, now, do you want to tell us a bit about who you are and where you work? Um, I, I mentioned you work in the in the you know this car insurance um, claim industry, but do you want to tell us a bit what you, what your job is? Yes. Um, okay. Well, my, my name is Mike Hall. Um, I'm head of research at uh, an independent company of forensic engineers called GBB. And we're based in Preston, Lancashire in the UK. Um, at GBB, our forensic experts work from various geographical locations around the UK to investigate a wide range of vehicle-related incidents, such as uh, vehicle collisions, pedestrian impacts, motorbike and cycle incidents, vehicle fires, mechanical failures, uh, obviously some of which uh, involve uh, an aspect of fraud, but a lot do not. A lot of the work that we do uh, involves clarification of issues that insurance companies are not sure about. Uh, for example, uh, if, if, if the, the, uh, the witnesses have various descriptions of the incident uh, that conflict, then insurance company may, may ask us to clarify by looking close, more closely at the, at the incident. Um, now, my role as head of research is to support our experts in their investigations, to provide maths and science support where required, and to carry out uh, research projects to, to increase our knowledge and understanding of, of certain aspects of, of, of all the incidents that we, we, we investigate. Yeah, and, you, and you, you, you're a physicist by training, is that right, Mike? I'm a physicist stroke engineer, I think of myself as. I've taught physics, but I've taught engineering as well. So, so, uh, so as a collision investigator, could you just briefly sort of say what you might do typically? I mean, there's obviously no typical day in any job, but what sort of things would you do when you're investigating a collision? Okay, well, um, first of all, we receive instructions from an insurance company about a claim they are unsure about for, for various reasons. So with these instructions, we get a package of information such as witness statements, uh, photographs, and um, uh, uh, repair costs, stuff like that. So we work with this initial package of information, but also the instructions that we receive will tell us what the insurance companies want us to look at. Do they want us to look at the consistency of damage? Do they want us to, to look at occupant movement, which is like a euphemism for injury? Since we're not medics, we, we can't uh, actually prognosticate on whether somebody's actually injured or not. But we can say things like, uh, we believe in this collision, somebody may have experienced unusual movement or not. So we use terms like the likelihood of unusual movement or unlikely and so on. Um, so these are the sorts of things that the insurance companies would like us to, to look at. So we have to work with, with what we're instructed to do. So we, we may be asked just to do a desktop report, which is uh, from our desks, look at all the information sent to us and write up a report accordingly. If we have enough information, if we don't, we go back to insurance companies, companies say, we need more information, this, this, and this. Uh, we may be asked to go out and inspect a scene to video traffic or inspect some vehicles for the damage that's been caused to them in an instant. 
if it's a fire-related incident, then we may obviously go and look at a vehicle that has fire damage, and our fire experts will ascertain the source of the fire, the spread of the fire, and um, and so and and so on, the likely cause of fires. Because there's such a wide variety of incidents, our experts have have a wide range of skills. So we allocate the job according to the experts available and, and what, what their particular backgrounds are. Um, so, for example, let, let me, if I give, give an example of, of say, a, quite a large incident that we, we might come across with, for example, a, a motorbike traveling down a narrow country lane, a car pulls out of a side road and there's a collision. A car driver may or not be injured, the motorcyclist may well be badly injured. It may even be a fatality. This is a lot, what we call a large loss case. There's a lot of money involved. And insurance companies um, on both sides, the motorcyclist insurers and the car insurers, may well instruct um, uh, forensic experts to investigate further. Um, so are, um, most, are most of those claims um, dubious? Or, are, or is it just a case of you want to make sure that what's being claimed for is valid? Or... Are there some claims that really stand out as looking very dodgy when they come in? Yes, yes. I mean, there are patterns we have to say that we recognise, or or certain things that we that we we suspect might be might indicate a fraudulent claim. Um, they are a reasonable percentage of the work we do, but I wouldn't like anybody to think that, that that's all we do. We look at fraudulent claims. Uh, for example, this large collision I was talking about. The motorcyclist insurers may claim it's totally the fault of the person who, who, who came out of a side road, and so that person's insurers has full liability. But they might say that, hang on, we believe the motorcyclist was traveling too fast or wasn't paying attention or something. We think that you are liable for some of the costs as well. So there's there's a dispute between insurers as to who should pay how much. So sometimes that's what we're dealing with. Not exactly a fraud, but simply a clarification of who should pay what. And in these large cases, we could be talking about hundreds of thousands of pounds, if, if not millions of pounds, if somebody requires 24-7 care for the rest of their life for the injuries they've received. So our forensic expert from the large loss team will go to the site. They will... They will take a 3D virtual scan of the site, either using laser scans or photogrammetry techniques, so they can construct back at the office a 3D uh, virtual scene of incident um, in quite fine detail, millimeter sort of re resolution. Within this virtual scene, they can place a car and a motorcycle, which can be animated and on the motorbike in the vehicle, they can place virtual cameras as well. So they can be animated and we could try out various scenarios and we can see basically what the car driver would have seen as they were pulling out or ready to pull out. And we can see what the motorcyclist would have seen as they approached the junction. So can you actually reconstruct with absolute certainty what might have happened? Or is it only sort of give a suggestion of your, the most likely... A bit in between the two, really, a bit in between the two. We can never be absolutely certain, but there will be evidence. There'll be damage to the car. There'll be damage to the motorcycle. There may be marks on the road surface to indicate braking. There may be damage to trees or other surrounding objects. 
that provide evidence. And what we'll do with our, with our virtual construction, we'll play out various scenarios and we'll see which is the most likely that fits in with all the evidence that's available. And then once we've done all that and we've come to a sort of opinion, or the experts come to opinion, they will then write a forensic report. Uh, and by forensic report, I mean it's a, it's a report that's written for the court, usually a civil court. And even though the insurance company will be paying us for the report, we don't write the report for them. We write it for the, for the court. That, that's understood. That's what a forensic report is. It has to be completely impartial. So if what we say uh, isn't in the favour of the insurance company who's, who's paying us, then that's, that's sort of bad luck in a sense. Uh, we, don't, we don't write the report for them. We write it for, for the court to assist the judge in coming to some sort of um, decision regarding what's happened and the apportionment of, uh, if you like, blame or costs, really. Blame doesn't always come into it. it it's about apportioning the, the, the payout. So our investigators must have the necessary skills, understanding of physics uh, to carry out that sort of investigation. Yeah, because I was going to say, I mean, Mike, how much physics do you need or what sort of physics do you need to use in your job? Um, it varies. Sometimes not a lot. Sometimes quite a bit. Obviously, our experts have to be totally familiar with with Newton's laws of motion, concepts of momentum, uh, kinetic energy, work and impulse and stuff like that. Understand how momentum is transferred from one vehicle to another in a collision, how kinetic energy is transferred from one vehicle to another, but not totally because some is lost in creating damage to the vehicles. So you understand the whole uh, physics process of what goes on in the collision. And they need to be able to include that in their report in a clear and concise manner, if required. Although we don't want to fill up a report with too much science or too much maths. But if the case ends up in court, our expert may well have to appear as an expert witness in court and could possibly come under quite aggressive questioning by a barrister working for the other side. And so they have to know the science behind their opinion and to explain it clearly uh, while, while in a court of law. And barristers uh, will often ask questions beyond the report just to try and test the expert's knowledge of, 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 of underlying areas of physics, such as Newton's laws and stuff like that. Barristers themselves are rarely... Um, that knowledgeable in science that they can ask uh, quite complex questions, but um, they will certainly understand about Newton's laws. And so our expert may well get questions on, on basic physics regarding vehicle collisions, and they must be able to explain their opinions and that sort of knowledge. I'll give you an, exam an example. It's more of a maths example, and it's not from one of our experts. It's from an expert working for another company in his report, his opinion gave a, a, an impact speed to three decimal places, 8.752 miles an hour, for example. And he included that in his report. And in the court of law, he was questioned on this. You, you gave a, a speed, 8.742 uh, miles an hour. Could it not have been 8.473 miles an hour? 
And so, so a barrister will insert a little lever and try and prize open the 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 expert's ability and, and how can they measure things or calculate things to that sort of precision. Experts have to be aware of all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, I mean, obviously uh, collisions, it can be a matter of life or death, but um, I was wondering, have you come across, there must have been some fairly ridiculous claims that have been submitted that you've been able to sort of weed out using physics. Have you got any uh, funny stories that you can tell us? Well, we we do come across some some funny things at times. Um, uh, Again, another thing an expert said, uh, that Newton's laws don't apply when a vehicle is on ice. (laughs) <laughs> or, or that um, another claim is that uh, uh, an occupant can be injured even when a collision happens at zero miles an hour. In other words, no right. collision, basically. Right. So I've seen that more than once, funny enough. But as to an actual incident, the, I mean, the most ridiculous one was this bus collision, which I think I mentioned in, in the article. And um, I think, I think, do you want to remind people about that one? So that was the one where you had a load of people who got on a bus, and then yes. I seem to remember they had an accomplice in a car who yeah. uh, deliberately bumped into the bus, and all the people who'd got on the bus fell over simultaneously and this sort of claimed really, injury. Absolutely. This was a group of scammers. Now, why they thought they could get away with this, because buses these days have cameras all around the outside to give the driver traffic awareness, and obviously to record anything that's going on if there's an incident. And they have cameras inside the bus as well to see what's happening to the passengers inside. And they have an event data recorder on board as well to record any bumps that happen in terms of of an acceleration pulse. So all this surveillance is going on, and yet they still try to pull this scam. So the idea was that this bus would be trailed by a car that had the intention of ramming the bus, um, from behind, after some of their colleagues had gotten on board at an earlier stop and were preparing themselves for this bump. In fact, on the video, you can see someone looking around to see if they can spot the car before the bump. You know, it was a bit obvious. Yeah, yeah. I have to say these people have not got the highest IQ who do do this sort of thing. But anyway, um, so the car bumps the bus. On cue, the people grasp their necks, move around dramatically, and wanted to even throw themselves on the floor, clutching their necks, screaming and shouting. All the while, the bona fide passengers... <laughs> they just sat there watching. <laughs> sat there watching it, and you can barely see them register the bump that's occurred. So there's huge contrast between genuine passengers and, and the scams. And all this is caught on the bus's videos, obviously. Now, we were instructed to look at this, so we had all this video evidence we could write up. Uh, we also had the event data recorder. The acceleration pulse from that showed us what a minor bump this was for the bus. A bit more of a bump for the car because that's got a much lower mass. So that will, I, don't, I don't think any of the scammers in the car were injured, although it would have been slightly poetic justice had they been. But um, anyway, so obviously a forensic report was written up and clear evidence that this was a scam. And this was totally thrown out. All these bogus claims were thrown out and the bus company, you know, won the case hands down sort of thing. But it was something, it was most ridiculous why these people ever thought they could get away with it under those circumstances. There's so much surveillance. Yeah. 
should have, should have done Newtonian physics at school. But I was going to say the other thing, Mike, was um, you said that you was, your job title was head of research. So I was just wondering, what does that mean? What sort of research are you doing? Okay. Well, uh, it's a, a grandiose title so, sort of thing. Um, so I'm there to support our experts who are scattered all over the country, um, uh, most often working working from home. So they're close to the site of any incidents if they need if they need to be. Um, if they have any any um, queries regarding maths or science, uh, for example, they may uh, be in possession of the report written by an expert for another company, and uh, there's some dubious maths or physics in this. They just want a second opinion about it. Um, they may contact me. I'll see a copy of this report emailed to me, and I can comment on the maths or the physics involved. Um, I also give training to our experts when they first start with us to make sure they're up to speed regarding maths and physics so they'll come down to HQ where I can do some work with them. So there's that. It's not so much research, more like training and, and being there for our, our experts. Um, but we can do research on particular instances, particularly if there, there's enough um, money in it, in a sense, if it's complex. For example, a lot of uh, vehicles of a particular make and model were catching fire with monotonous frequency, or high frequency, I should say, some time ago. So this car was catching fire. Um, there was one particular uh, source of this fire, which it was coming from the, the vehicle's air conditioning system, heating and ventilating air conditioning system, which is under the dashboard. So we could see clearly the fires were originating from that area. We were instructed by uh, a national newspaper who were campaigning for the victims of these fires to investigate. So we got one of these heating and ventilating systems out of one of these cars, um, had it in our lab. We connected up to a power system, a battery, basically, thermocouples, uh, tachometers, all sorts of things. And we found not just one fault with the system, but several faults that could lead to the fires. So this is research which I could do in the lab to support a particular case. Mm -hmm. um, and in the end, the, the, uh, the national newspaper wrote a quite an inflammatory article regarding this, blaming the car manufacturer, who then threatened to sue the newspaper and sue us as well. All right, so I better not ask you what the car was in case they're listening. No, I'm being careful not to say. But uh, <laughs> the, the company was called in front of a parliament, parliamentary select committee, not once but twice, to be questioned on this. And eventually they had to admit liability, they had a couple of recalls for this vehicle, and very soon afterwards they stopped producing the vehicle. And I think the whole company was sold out as well, eventually. Oh, wow, okay. Um, <laughs> well, but, I shouldn't laugh, it sounds very serious, um, if anyone had been involved in that. Well, it's quite lucky that nobody was badly injured. <laughs> I don't think anybody was injured in these fires, but there were hundreds of them. Um, other research, like crash testing, we do our own crash testing, which is sort of generic. So it gives us a lot of background information, a lot of our, of our own crash test reports, which we can write, and then can be appended to relevant forensic reports when required. So that's other types of research. We do not align to any particular case, but of a general nature. So it's quite mm. a wide remit, head of research, quite a lot of stuff. A very interesting job, actually. So I was going to say, if someone who's listening to this wants to get into this area with a physics background, I mean, 
Are there many opportunities for people? Um, have you got any advice or tips for somebody who fancies doing the kind of job that you do? Um, well, I have to say there's not a lot of companies doing this sort of work. Um, we employ people with particular skills. Uh, for example, um, we recently employed a fire expert. So he will have, he's in a master's in, 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 in fire, uh, fire investigations. Um, in general, our engineers, though, will, will have a, a mechanical uh, physics engineering background. We want, a, we want a range of skills. And um, we take a lot of our experts from the police service, maybe retired police officers who spent quite a few years in the police traffic accident investigation branch. They're ever so, ever so useful investigators because they, they really know what's, you know, how to deal with an investigation. And, and maybe with a little bit of maths and physics training, they become really, really good. It's not necessary that our experts are, are, are real experts in maths and physics, you know, like university lecturers and stuff like that, although some of them do have those sort of strengths. It's investigative skills and the ability to write up uh, in a clear, concise manner is important. Um, so from time to time, we do take on people. Um we do advertise, but very often it's word of mouth with us. Mm -hmm. But I would, what I would say to anybody who's really interested in collision investigation, then just send in a speculative application with a CV, and we will always keep these on record. So if a vacancy comes up, mm -hmm. uh, we can contact somebody. And we also occasionally have training posts as well, so we can have like a graduate training position as well. But I have to say, our experts can make good money in this job. It's certainly a worthwhile job from a financial point point mm -hmm. of view. Mm, that's it. Well, that's that. That's useful to know. And I was going to before we finish, I was going to say, Mike, are you a very careful driver? Have you ever been involved in a collision yourself? <laughs> um, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> sounds a bit qualified, that doesn't it? I've I've been caught speeding a couple of times. Uh, I've had to go on speed awareness course. Which I've tried to make the most of. Uh, I've said, right, I've, I've got to do this. I'm going to really concentrate, and make sure I learn something. And I did learn something on both occasions. <laughs> um, so I am a careful driver now. It's something to do with age as well. I'm very much aware of speed limits and speed gates, you know, where you've got a, sp a speed sign on both sides of the road telling you the speed limit has changed, those are speed gates. I really look out for those. I'm very aware. And I try and anticipate other, other drivers movements and stuff like that so I've, I've not been involved in a collision um fortunately um so and i know i know how difficult these collisions can mm. be to resolve at times yeah well i've just done one of those speed awareness courses myself so uh right. I, I, it was actually very useful and i yeah, i did get caught so uh, yeah all right lovely to talk to you mike thanks very much and um good luck with the rest of your uh, career hope you um have an interesting um more cases, although hopefully then nothing too serious to get involved. I in. know, I know. Thank All you right. very much, Martin. Thank, Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Cheers. Bye bye. That was Michael Hall in conversation with Mateen Durrani. Mike has written a feature article for Physics World about vehicle collisions, and you can find it on the website. Just look for the headline, Using Newton's Law to Weed Out Bogus Car Crash Claims. 
I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Michael Hall, Margaret Harris, and Mateen Durrani for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, do check out the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester takes an in-depth look at the science behind the 2022 Nobel Prize for Physics and the technologies that are emerging as a result. Physics World.